On May 25, 2021, David Cade, Executive Vice President and CEO of AHLA, interviewed three prominent health law leaders about how we, as a community, can improve equity in healthcare and health law practice. This three-part series presents each recorded interview. Full video and audio of the proceedings are available at AmericanHealthLaw.org slash Racial Disparities in Healthcare. Well, welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. I'm glad that you're here with us today. So let's get started, and I'll just ask you to just briefly introduce yourself. Um, tell us where you work, what you do, what's your title. Uh, my name is Vanessa Scott. I am a partner at Evershed Sutherland U.S., and I am in the Washington, D.C. office. I'm a partner in the tax group, but I specialize in ERISA employee benefits and executive compensation. And in addition to being a partner there, I'm also the Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer for our U.S. offices. You are engaged in a wide variety of issues and activities. And just to, to set the stage, for my purposes, an ERISA lawyer is a healthcare lawyer. Yes. So I'm glad you feel that way. And I, so, I do. I specialize in health and welfare plans. And that is our world. Okay. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that. And I also want to talk a little bit about your role in the firm with diversity inclusion because that's not a common role I see in a lot of firms. So mm -hmm. uh, I invite you to share a little bit about um, how that role was developed, mm -hmm. why was it developed, yeah. and what do you do in that role? Yeah, sure. So um, I've been in the role for about five years, and we had a chief diversity um, officer prior to me was our first managing partner actually was our first chief diversity officer and so uh, once he rotated out of the managing partner role he took that role for a couple of years and then my um, my current managing partner decided that in order to integrate our diversity strategy with our business strategy we really needed someone who was an equity partner someone who had a financial stake in the business and someone who could really sort of drive our diversity strategy with our business goals in mind and so um, I did take on the task. At the time, I knew nothing about diversity strategy. Um, I told him the only thing I know about diversity is that I'm black and a woman, um, but I'm going to learn. And so I spent a lot of time studying and just sort of looking at lots of different outside of the legal industry and within the, the legal industry and just taking some time to take courses and just do a lot of due diligence around what it means to develop a diversity strategy, what it means at a corporate level, what it means at a partnership or law firm level, and really how I could be a support system internally for our attorneys in particular, but our broader staff as well. And in addition, how I can be an advocate for our clients who are more often seeking diverse teams. And so making sure that we have the right talent to be able to serve the client's needs in that aspect has become a key part of my role. But also it's been kind of making sure that the partners understand exactly what their clients are looking for when they say they're looking for diversity or they say they're looking for diverse teams. That isn't as evident as it might seem like it is to everyone. And so doing a little bit of uh, translating sometimes and doing um, a little bit of educating is also a, a big part of my role. So again, in the role you play, not only with your firm, but with your clients, mm -hmm. I'm, 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 I'm I'm really excited about meeting you and having a chance to talk to someone who has this role in a law firm, yeah. which as I said, is not a traditional role. So I don't know in your world if you're seeing other law firms follow, learn, mm -hmm. and adopt the strategy that you all have. 
and if not, this is a, an opportunity for us to get the word out oh, absolutely, and yeah. to elevate what you're doing mm -hmm. and help folks understand that it's important to do this and that it, it's worth the effort. Because I suspect mm -hmm. it wasn't easy. No, it was not. <laughs> and it's still, the, it's not easy, but it's fun and it's worth it. Um, I'll talk about sort of my role. I think of my role as being twofold. There's an internal part to my role and there's an external part to my role. So let me talk about the internal role first. And I think that was 90% of the role when I took it on. I think now the external part of my role is maybe 50% of my role. It's changed dramatically in the last few years. So the internal part of my role is really coming up with our internal strategy around diversity for our attorneys primarily. I'm starting to work more with our core professional staff as well, but it's really focusing on recruiting and retaining and helping to develop our women and diverse attorneys. So it's making sure, first of all, that we are developing a pipeline. So we have a a program called Evershed Sutherland Scholars where we reach out to different undergraduate institutions and we focus primarily on HBCUs. We find people who are interested in law school. We put them through a six-week course, uh, sort of a crash course in law school um, with a with a Emory Law School professor and kind of give them a sense of sort of what it's like because a lot of times people who have been very successful in undergrad don't really know what it takes to be successful in law school and so we sort of ease their way into law school and we sort of we, we call it demystifying what it takes to be successful in law school so part of my strategy in developing diverse talent and bringing in diverse talent is about developing the right pipeline that's our pipeline program so the next thing that i also do is i sit on the uh, hiring committee so i am in charge of making sure that our hiring committee is always considering different what i call pools of talent we're fishing in the right pools because sometimes the talent is out there but you just aren't looking in the right places and what that means is that you're missing out on talent right if you're fishing in a third of the pond there's two thirds of the pond that you really aren't reaping any benefits from and so making sure that we're fishing in the entire pond for talent so to speak and that we are looking at who we're bringing in for our first year class and and with our lateral hires as well then the, another part of my internal role is also supporting the staff or the attorneys once, they, once they're there. So if you bring in great talent and you don't recognize that that talent maybe needs to um, understand sort of what you, what, exactly what the levers of success are at the firm, then what you're gonna do is you're gonna bring people in because they're different under the diversity and inclusion banner and then you're gonna fire them because they're not like you. Right, and that's exactly what we don't want to do. So part of that is sort of training our partners and our senior associates to understand that success can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to look exactly like this partner did it or this associate did it. It can look a lot of different ways and really start to think about what really delivers the product that our clients are looking for and how can people get to that perhaps differently. That's a portion of diversity I think it's lost. Um, you bring in people who look different or may sound different or may, may be from different backgrounds, but you aren't thinking about kind of how success looks in their world and how they can bring a different view of success to what you're trying to deliver to the client. So my job is there, there's an education portion of that and there's a development portion of that. And we have various um, diversity sort of structures and 
um, programming that drive that. Some of it's education, some of it's community building. So one of the things that I did was um, develop affinity groups. And you do see a lot of law firms now have affinity mm -hmm. groups. And so we have affinity groups that are community-based that sort of bring people together from various diverse backgrounds, give them a community of people to kind of help develop them and build them, but also they're a resource for the firm. So to the extent that there are questions about, for instance, um, we had some questions around um, LGBTQ um, benefits in our health plan. We went to our LGBTQ affinity group and they were a resource to, for the firm to say, this is what you should be doing. These are the types of benefits that you know, are sort of standard in the market. They helped us sort of develop that. So there, those groups are also resource groups for the firm and it also, makes sure that our diverse attorneys understand that they have a vested stake in not just sort of delivering billable hours, but in how we grow and how we develop as a firm generally. Because firms that don't do that are going to die on the vine, quite frankly. So one of the things that I found very interesting in this journey, and I don't think you use this word, but the word is acceptance. Mm -hmm. A line that you were working against was in your role, you're doing a lot of outreach and training and bringing in the talent. Mm -hmm. And you're also working internally, again, my word, mm -hmm. acceptance, to get the existing structure, the existing partners to accept these individuals for who they are. Mm -hmm. And you're defining success for the client mm -hmm. in a different way. Right, yeah. And how is that working? Because I think many firms, you're right, are failing to do the second part, yeah. to work on internal acceptance where they're bringing them in and they accept them at that point and expect them to do what they do right. the way they did it. And yeah. when that doesn't happen, yeah, then they're fired or they transition out. So talk to me a little bit more about the work you're doing and you have done for the larger acceptance so that individuals who are coming in are feeling valued and the clients yeah. are also feeling supported. Right, so I think that that has a lot to do with um, talking to partners about why you want diversity, right? And having everyone sort of step back and really think about what does having people who look different or from different backgrounds, what does it really bring to us? And what it really brings to us is a different way of thinking. Being more creative, being more innovative, that's what we're trying to get out of diversity. We're not just trying to get people who look different. That aspect is what I call, that's what I call Noah's Ark diversity, right? You've got two of these, you've got three of these, you've got two of these, okay, we're diverse. That's not diversity. It's really about bringing in different perspectives and really thinking about how do we really innovate for the client. Thinking about if you're trying to get to 100, there's lots of ways to get to 100 and bringing in diverse people helps you think about new and different ways to get to 100. So that's sort of the way that I explain it. I think that what we try to do as far as boots on the ground type efforts is we really look through, for instance, performance reviews, right? And we look for words that sort of trigger that I'm uncomfortable because this person is different, but that really don't speak to the person's ability to give the client what they want and what they need, right? And so we try to make sure, for instance, and I think it's very important in performance reviews, right? Because sometimes there are just trigger words that you'll see over and over again when people are a little bit uncomfortable with being around someone who doesn't kind of align with their background or align with their worldview. And you'll see certain words pop up and if that continues over time, an associate will find themselves in a position where they go, I'm getting great hours, I'm doing great work, 
Why am I not integrating into the group? Why am I not getting these great projects? And when they can't answer that question, like you said, that's when they transition out. And you lose that talent and you lose that diversity. And so really having people think about, well, why did you use this term? And what is it that this person isn't doing well? Okay, but is it still achieving what they need? And, and really making people think through, oh, I can't always hire in my own image and I can't promote in my own image all the time either because that really isn't getting to what we need to do around diversity. So it's a, I'd say it's a slow but worthwhile process. The reason why I have enjoyed it so much is because I think that our firm really has the infrastructure to do that. We have the type of culture where people go, oh, didn't realize I was doing that. All right, let's think about it a little bit more. And that's really the culture that you need. And I think that it took, there are baby steps along getting to that culture. I think it does start with a little bit of the sort of training 101 that everyone sort of at this point kind of sighs and goes, oh, we have to go through this diversity training. But you can't just hop into doing some sort of really um, you know, heavy duty DNI equity training work. You kind of have to bring people along. And so we've, we've gone through that process, we've brought people along, and I think that we're at a place now where people can see, okay, you know what, maybe the way that I'm approaching how successful this person is or what I'm looking for out of this person, maybe that's just me trying to look for someone who's more like me and not necessarily trying to make sure I'm developing the best lawyer or giving the best product to the client. And so that's where the real kind of magic happens and that's where I think the work really is at the law firm level. And it sounds magical and the, one of the reasons I, I want to continue to give you an opportunity to share is I'm hoping that as folks listen to you, if their organizations, firm or no firm, aren't doing this or haven't done it, mm -hmm. that they will realize that they can and yeah. that they should. Right. Uh, and it's not just, as you said, bringing folks in, mm -hmm. but it's the cultural change that I hear yeah. that you're describing. And I know that wasn't easy. No, I think that, you know, we, 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 I think all law firms start from a place of we have a good culture, we have great people, we have smart people, right? And you're successful. And we're successful, right? Trying to marry that into we're not doing DNI just because we're good people. We are doing it because we're good people, but we want to be more successful. In fact, we want to be more successful than the next firm. And if the next firm isn't fishing in that talent pool, then we're going to fish in it, we're going to bring that talent in, we're going to make that talent successful, and we're going to give that talent an opportunity to deliver for the client. And so I do think that if firms want to do that, one of the things that they have to make sure that they do is that you have to have an advocate who's at the table during the business discussions. You have to have someone who is sitting in the partner meetings, who is listening to the proposals, whether it's policy or structure or whatever it is, and that feels empowered because of either their role or their position of the at the firm or the culture of the firm to raise their hand and say, hey, have we thought about this? Hey, are we really considering every single person in the firm for this leadership position that we can? Really, and putting in systems and structures so that you start off raising your hand, but after a while it gets to the point where I don't have to be in the room. Someone else is raising their hand and saying, hey, you know what, we're looking at five guys for this new leadership position. Are we really looking at everyone we should be looking for, looking at? Or, you know, we've interviewed 26 people for this summer class and 85% of them have been male or 85% of them have been white. Maybe we should start thinking about what the law school classes look like and making sure that our pool of people that we're interviewing looks 
a little bit closer to those classes. And I think that that can be a sea change, just sort of depending on the culture of the firm. But I think that we've had some successes, and so I think it makes it a little easier when one, you see the successes, and two, people understand that this aligns with your business goals. Right. DNI is not about not giving people feedback or being afraid to give black and brown associates um, some, some, some real sort of critical um, comments on their, on their work. It is really about making your firm more successful and more profitable because you're expanding the pool of talent and you're really delivering on the promise of the client, not just to give them a great product, but to give them a great product from a diverse team. So I want to take you back. I love the celebration of the successes that you all have, mm -hmm. and I'm sure it is translating into the client and into the boardroom. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to that, but I want to take you back to help bring us through your journey. Okay. I want to take you back to the beginning, whether that's five years or 10 years. Mm -hmm. And here's the point. To begin to educate individuals about the benefits mm -hmm. that you've just described, the term that we all use is the business case for yeah. diversity. Right. I want you to go back and talk to me about the journey and whether you or your predecessors, the managing partner, was in that early phase mm -hmm. of educating the rest of the firm in this case about the business imperative. And the reason I pause for that, which is one of the reasons it's so exciting to talk to somebody like you, when I hear the phrase business case for, mm -hmm. what is also oftentimes not said is the business case against. Because ah. if you are for, yeah. you have the other side of the coin is against. Yeah. So it's oftentimes not said in the room, but one of the reasons I think we, we have folks talk about the business case for is to counter the business case against. Yeah. So take me back to the journey and help me understand how you worked through that. Right, okay. To, to begin the process to change the culture. Sure, absolutely. I, like, I, I think that it's, it, you're, you're quite astute to understand that it is sort of a step-by-step -step process, right? Um, I think that because I came into the role when I was a fairly young partner, um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure that I was doing was being a good steward of the firm's resources around diversity. So I knew kind of what I thought we should do. I knew what I thought our gaps were, but I really needed a professional to come in and tell me. So the first thing that we did was a full-blown diversity assessment. So we had someone come in, we um, did focus interviews, we did surveys, we did one-on-one -on -one interviews, and one of the most important parts of that process was interviewing our regretted losses. So regretted losses are associates or partners who are female or diverse who left the firm within the, the prior five years prior to our assessment reaching out to them and talking to them about why they left, what would have kept them there, um, and some of the things that they've experienced since that might benefit us as, as we're kind of growing and developing as a firm. And as far as the business case is concerned, the way that I explain it is that, listen, we are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop associates, right? And if you're gonna spend that money to develop them only to lose them, because you just aren't aware of the way that they're delivering on success, you're not going to be here in 50 years. Your firm is going to die on the vine, right? Any company that doesn't evolve. It was sort of like what, one thing that I saw with um, in corporate America is um, when millennials were starting to come into the workforce, 
corporate America shifted and went, well, we've got to give millennials exactly what they want because we need millennial talent, right? Why did they do that? Because they didn't want to die on the vine. You need the talent. You've got to go out there and make the talent want to be the place. And so the process that we were going through, as I described it, was a way to make sure that we were going to be the place where people were like, this is my great opportunity. And they didn't see a great opportunity over at law firm Dewey Cheatham and Howe or at this in-house department. Like this was the place where I had my, my, my best opportunity. But in order to do that, we needed to figure out exactly where from a professional standpoint our gaps were. So that involved bringing in a consultant and going through a pretty rigorous process. I think it took about six months. Um, and then they delivered out a report and said, hey, these are the things that are great. These are the things that you really need to work on. These are the things that your uh, regretted losses are saying may have kept them there. And then you drive your resources with, to, to match that. What is it that you're doing? Where are your gaps? You put your resources in places that will fill those gaps, but I think you also have to look at your firm's business strategy, right? And I think that's why it's important to have a partner who is at the table and is engaged in what the firm is doing from a business and growth and financial perspective to really understand that. Because if you don't align what you're doing on the DNI strategy side with the firm's business mm -hmm. side, then you're going to have skeptics who go, I, that diversity thing is for women and diverse attorneys, it's not for me. No, this is for you because you also want to be financially successful. You want to be more profitable. If you are going to be more profitable, there are talent pools out here that you are either not tapping or that you are allowing to leave and that is causing you to be less profitable. This is what we're trying to achieve as a firm. If you want to try to achieve that with the best talent possible, this is the way you've got to grow and develop that talent and you've got to go out there and get that talent and make it the place that they want to be. So how about the transition to bring in and help your clients understand what you're doing and to see the value that your model is bringing to them. Right, I, yeah, I, there is, or at some point there, there, there are those discussions around, well, my client doesn't care about diversity, right? And so I don't really have to worry about that. And making people understand that we care about diversity, right? It's part of the way that we are going to continue to, to succeed as a firm, and so your client may not care about our billing practices, right? But if we don't adhere to our billing practices, we won't be here for very long, will we? It's the same type of thing. This is a part of our internal systems and structures. And so even if the client is not sort of pushing for a diverse team, we want to make sure that in 10 years or 15 years or 20 years when this partner is ready to transition this work over, maybe the client does care about it then. Or maybe the client wants to make sure that whoever that work is transitioned to is the best possible lawyer and not just the best possible lawyer that looks exactly like the lawyer that they have right now. And so in order to be able to do that, our partners have to be very committed to ensuring that they are having diverse teams work on their matters, interact with our clients, um, and, and making sure that from a succession planning perspective, we are, make, we, are have, we are developing a pool of people who are the very best lawyers, not just the very best lawyers who have been just like the last five lawyers on this matter, but the very best lawyers possible. Clients will see that. It, it's not even a process of does a client care or does a client not care. But we've gotten to a point now where I think our biggest clients, our sort of top 10, top 20, top 30 clients, 
there are very few clients in that, on that list where you could say they don't care. Not only do they care, but they're telling us exactly what they want to see. They want to see who's on their matters on a month-by-month -month basis. They want to see who do you have in the pipeline to succeed. Who's getting credit for the matters within the firm? They are getting very, very sophisticated about questions. It used to be, how many people do you have at the firm that are diverse? How many women do you have who are diverse? Now it's, what types of programs are you putting in place to make sure that the diverse people that you're putting on my team stay there? And that they're going to be ready to take over these matters in, in 15 years. And so, even if a particular client is not saying, well, this is exactly what I want, and this is what I think about diversity, we've got to remember that our commitment is always giving the client the best possible talent, the best possible product, and in order to do that, you can't look at a group of people this small. You've got to really expand that group, and if you expand that group, you should have some diverse individuals, women, people from a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different perspectives. That's the only way you're going to make sure that you're fully delivering on what the client wants. And it sounds like the key to just put a label on it is that accountability. The yeah. clients are not just accepting the good legal work that you're giving them, but they are also cycling back accountability. Yeah. And there's transparency in this also. Yeah. And the thing that I hear in your comment that transcends all of this is opportunity opportunity yeah. for everyone. You talked about the pool, the right. pond. Exactly. Bigger pond, more opportunity. Exactly. That is, is, is your key to success. That's what makes it sticky, right? For, for people yeah. who, I remember going to my first law firm and being like, there's nobody that looks like me in partnership ranks. And um, I don't know what the path is going to look like to, to get there. And, and thinking, this is not going to be the place for me, right? I didn't see the opportunities. The opportunities may have been there, I don't know. But I really didn't see them. I really didn't see how to navigate a path. And diverse and women attorneys, I think in particular, are more apt to stay at a organization, whether it's a law firm or company or, or what have you, when they say, okay, you know what, I can see a path to the next level, or I can see that someone else has made it there. We're less likely to sort of leave it to the judges, so to speak, and say, oh, you know what, I still might be able to do it, I don't know. We're just less risk adverse. And so if you give people more opportunity by expanding the pool of talent, what happens is people start elevating, and they start, you see more women partners, more diverse partners, and more of the associates are saying, oh, I see how I could get to X place or Y place. And so that's one of the things that I'm really trying to make sure that we think about, not just when we're thinking about internal development and advancement, but also lateral partner hiring, which is tough for, for any law firm. But a lot of times law firms will lateral partner hire based on someone saying, hey, you know what, I know a great person over at X firm that I came from and they're looking for something new, why don't we hire them? What ends up happening is that you have a lot of lateral hires that look like the people who are already there, right? And if we aren't, if we don't have a ton of people from 10 or 15 years ago who are diverse in women who are ready to elevate to partner, we've got to have lateral hires coming in to give more of a sort of opportunity pool to the younger associates because 50%, 60% of our incoming associate classes now are diverse in women. 
who are they going to look to if we don't have the lateral partners coming in in addition to the partners advancing um, through the firm who've, who've been there from day one? And so really trying to think about how do we get those people in place to demonstrate, yes, the opportunities are here for you. This is going to be the place where you have that, that, that great moment or that great chance to shine. You don't have to go someplace else in order to do that. That's probably the toughest aspect of it, I think. Well, I suspect it's tough because it's constant. It's yeah. tough because you can't say we're done. Right. You're never done. Yeah. You're on this journey because the practice, the service of your clients is fluid yeah. and it's continual and, so and there's a churn. Mm -hmm. And so talk to me then about how you maintain that level of education and training within the organization to help the message stay fresh mm -hmm. throughout your journey? Uh, I have a great team. <laughs> I have a great DNI team, and I think my firm has been great about recognizing that one person cannot do this. And so I think having people who are not just sort of steeped in the practice of diversity, and I do think that diversity and inclusion is a practice. You have to constantly evolve, you have to constantly study, you have to figure out what we're learning through data, what innovations are out there. You've really got to be committed to sort of a continuing education process around DNI. You've got to have a team that's committed to that. But I think that in addition to that, you also need a diversity team that's on the ground, right? Because the best information that I get back as far as what types of training do we need, what types of training work, what really doesn't work, is having people on the ground who are talking to our attorneys and talking to our staff. Um, and not just, hey, what did you think about that training last week, but that have a constant relationship with people so that people feel like they can pick up the phone and say, hey, you know what? I've been thinking about this, or I've been going through this, or I really want to be able to do this type of work, or I was really hoping to get on this particular client team, and this is one of the things that's a hurdle for me. This is one of the things that I can't quite figure out. That's when you start learning, okay, you know what? Maybe we need to do a little bit of training around this. That's how we learned about reviews, right? And we, what the, the thing that we were seeing on in reviews, we were talking to people and they were saying, I'm getting these comments in my reviews, I don't understand what the words are, like they're, they're these, these words and I don't really yeah. get it. And when, once we started looking through, we were seeing this is about difference. This is, this is about managing around difference and giving feedback around difference. And so we saw, okay, we've got to train more about how to give feedback around difference. But I do think that it is a process of constantly talking to your talent and treating your talent like the resource and the investment that it is. And it's an investment that you want to just, not just kind of freeze in place, but to grow you've got to constantly sort of check in and see where the potential obstacles are and how you can remove those barriers as quickly as possible <laughs> um, and, and in a way that isn't kind of disruptive from a business perspective as well. And it's delicate yeah. dance. Well, and one of the things I think that you highlighted is, you know, it, it is continual. It's that education. You know, the associates didn't understand the words that people were using. There's bias, there's cultural bias. Mm -hmm. And so, and since we are in the practice where words matter, I suspect you're doing a fair amount of helping people understand, you know, the difference in the terms that people use. There's mm -hmm. discrimination over here, there's opportunity over there. What does racial bias mean? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what are tropes, what are red yeah. flags? And, uh, and so, I, I, does that take a lot of your time, is sort of helping people understand the difference between inclusion mm -hmm. and diversity? Yeah. You know, are, are you there working constantly to help folks understand kind of how that, hap how, I how that yeah, works? Yeah, I, I think that that is 
critically important. I think it's also critically important that as much as lawyers love to think that, you know, we know how to do everything, we don't. We have to bring in professionals to do that. And so we have some really good professionals who come in and have those sessions. And I think you have to be aware of kind of how your organization from a cultural perspective receives information. Um, we have found that kind of lecture, broad-based lecture type series are, are better, quite frankly. And uh, lecture series where, where we sort of have a large lecture and then we break out into small groups to discuss these issues is they're much better than sort of these kind of broad-based trainings with 50 people in a conference room and you just kind of do them over and over and over. We've done that too. Um, this doesn't work as well. When you really kind of bring people together in groups across different offices, practice groups, attorneys and staff, and you bring people together and say, okay, I just learned about microaggressions. This is what I heard. This is what I don't get you get a lot more out of that than if you sit everybody, tell everyone they have to sit in a conference room for two hours and listen to a talk about microaggressions, right? Because you will have people who are engaged in those small group conversations that will say, this is a microaggression, this is what I've experienced before, or I had a friend experience that, or this is something I said and I didn't know I was saying something wrong. People don't want to say that in a conference room of 50 people, but right. they'll say it in a small group of five or six. And so, um, but I do think it takes bringing in good professionals um, in this space who know what they're doing, who are able to kind of pique the natural curiosity <laughs> that that is sort of inherent in people who work in the legal profession, profession whether as, as a lawyer or as staff, and then kind of hone in on that and then find a way to make it relevant to each individual person. But it is definitely, it is definitely a process. But we're, and we're constantly working on it. Let me just say, let me just say that yeah. we are nowhere near perfect, but we're definitely constantly. No, you are definitely on, on the journey, and you guys have been doing great work. And I, I, I think it's refreshing to hear uh, that lawyers don't have all the answers, yes. and that it's good <laughs> to bring in experts, yeah. and that you've done that. You've demystified the educational curve by allowing the organization to benefit from those who study this and you're receiving you know a lot of the benefits from that so i i want to take a minute and shift a little bit to the erisa side of okay. your portfolio sure as i said i was excited about the opportunity to talk to you for what you are managing mm -hmm. in your day-to-day -day world uh, and and under the larger umbrella of you know sort of racial disparities in mm -hmm. healthcare and mm -hmm. healthcare delivery i suspect you see a glimpse of that in your work yeah on the ERISA side. Exactly. Do you see ERISA being part of the problem and therefore part of the solution? It's much like the business case for diversity and the yeah. business case against it. So right. how do you view ERISA and its role in this country for helping or hurting mm -hmm. the cause for addressing racial and, and healthcare disparities? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think that if you think of part of ERISA as being the Affordable Care Act, for instance, I think that the Affordable Care Act um, really brought in a lot of design-based features that allowed plans to sort of think about the delivery of, ben of, of healthcare benefits in particular and their designs and their structures. I think that employers are becoming much more sophisticated about looking at health outcomes for their populations and then kind of reverse engineering that into healthcare plan design and that's what, a lot of what I see. But there were certain things like 
like Section 1557 of ERISA that really dealt with non-discrimination issues. Plans really weren't thinking about that as much. And so just bringing those types of structures in through ERISA allows plans to sort of say, you know what, we're looking at kind of, okay, we have a lot of people in our population that have hypertension, but are you collecting the data to really see sort of how that treatment is being delivered to your black population versus your Latino population versus your white population, or in different zip codes? Are there different outcomes? Are there significant health disparities? Are you getting the most out of your dollars? And I see more employers looking at that now and really kind of paying attention to not just, okay, our population's outcomes just kind of on a, on a comprehensive basis are this, and so we need to do this, but there are areas of our populations where we are not getting enough bang for our buck, less designed toward that. ERISA allows employers to do that without having to worry about state law, right? And so, you know, because we've got the preemption provisions, you've got a large employer, they're in a bunch of states. If they want to do that, they don't have to worry about, well, Pennsylvania says this, Utah says this, and Arizona says that. So I can't really do it across my entire plan. So I look at ERISA as a tool to allow employers to really kind of dig in on what they're trying to achieve from, um, from a healthcare perspective, what they're trying to deliver to their employees, um, what their kind of fiscal goals are, and then implement that on a nationwide basis or implement that across their entire population. Um, and so that's a lot of what I do. That's a lot of the design that I do. Um, it's also sort of sitting with them when they're talking to the consultants. And, and I love healthcare consultants, so, so don't get I. me wrong. It's all good. <laughs> exactly. But saying, hey, you know, yes, I think that design is great. You've got to think about um, this provision of ERISA that says you're going to have to test to make sure that the population that you've got over here and the population that you've got over here are getting the same thing. So, so making sure that employers, when they're looking at those different designs, are thinking about the fact that, you know, ERISA says that if you're going to have tax benefits as an employer from delivering these, um, these health structures, these health benefit structures, and your employees are go also going to get tax benefits, there's certain rules you got to follow to make sure everyone's treated fairly. I mean, that's sort of ERISA in a nutshell. And I'm there to make sure that when we're looking at those design-based changes or those design-based structures, whether they're based on health outcomes, whether they're based on an employer's fiscal concerns, that they also align with what ERISA says needs to be done in order to get those, you know, those health benefits, um, those tax benefits associated with the health benefits, and also, you know, keep the employers out of fiduciary trouble. That's also, yeah. <laughs> it's also a big part of it. Yeah. Well, and so it seems that you see. ERISA as a positive tool yeah. to help address the healthcare disparities, the inequities that are in our healthcare system, you know, under the shroud of racism mm -hmm. and other isms and fear in our culture. Again, as a tool for change mm -hmm. versus an impediment to change. Yeah, I do because I think that one of the things that employers can really think about doing is leveraging their 5,000, 6,000, 10,000, 20,000 employee, employees to say, hey, there are changes, not just in sort of benefit design, but maybe there are changes within the healthcare legal system, within the healthcare market that really need to be made. They can leverage those employees that they have and the dollars that they're putting into the healthcare system in order to do that. And ERISA allows them to do that, again, without kind of worrying about 50 state regulation too much. Um, I, I do understand that um, it is not 
the most intuitive law to navigate um, and, and I do uh, understand that it does come with some level of compliance burdens but the employers that I work with really appreciate the fact that if they want to deliver a certain design structure in Nebraska and they want to deliver the same one in New York there's a way to get them there and they don't have to worry about the fact that Nebraska has different health insurance laws than New York does, very different health insurance laws than, than New York does and so I, I do see it as, I, I try to make sure that they see it as, a, as more of a tool, uh, more as a weapon even, rather than just simply being a compliance burden. I see a little hopefulness coming through in, mm -hmm. in, in your comment and in what you are seeing in your client base that there are efforts afoot using ERISA and perhaps other tools, but more importantly, they're coming to the table with a desire to change and to make sure that there's equity and opportunity um, yeah. across the lines, the state lines that might have historically been impediments to that. Yeah, right. I, I think that that's um, I think that's definitely right. And I also I also think that employers are starting to think a little bit differently too about kind of the compliance associated with ERISA and the fact that you know maybe it's not. Maybe it's not as bad as, as we sometimes kind of make it out to be. I think that one of the, the, the good things about the Affordable Care Act, for instance, is that the process around developing, for instance, um, central health benefits, it, there was a process associated with figuring out which benefits are really those that are most important across all populations, right? And there were some employers who were really kind of paying attention to that. There are other employers who were maybe looking at more skinny plans, so to speak, um, and thinking, well, you know, my employees are complaining or, you know, this isn't really a big deal for them. I'm just going to deliver this. It really did sort of make employers think about what is it that we're trying to achieve? Because it's more than just saying, hey, yeah, we give a health plan. You want to give, make sure your employees are healthy so that they can come to work. You want to make sure that you're covering their dependents so that they aren't staying home from work because their dependents aren't healthy. There's a lot more that you're getting out of your healthcare benefit design. And if you really know what you're going to have to deliver in order to really have a robust benefit design that achieves your goals, then if ERISA's getting you there, that might not be such a horrible thing. It just means paying a lot of attention to the compliance, right? And making sure you're understanding not how to not kind of trip over some of those um, uh, enforcement or compliance hurdles. Um, but I think most employers, maybe in the first few years after the Affordable Care Act, I, I think there was, a, there was a lot of consternation about doing that. But I think most of employers have found their stride now and have found that, okay, you know what? I'm delivering benefits that might cost a little bit more, but they're also achieving the greater goals of what I was trying to achieve in the first place. Yeah. Did you find when COVID hit, so there was the Affordable Care Act, you know, sort of our historical timeline that had a blip, and mm -hmm. an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Continue, continue, COVID hit. Yeah. Did you find that employers were reacting to what they were seeing in their population base mm -hmm. and are now in the process of making more fundamental, long-lasting changes into the offerings mm -hmm. to address you know, the inequities and the disparities yeah. that were highlighted 
through COVID? Yeah, I think that they are in part because of some of the ERISA-related um, regulations that came out with relation to COVID. So for example, um, giving more flexibility, providing for more flexibility around telehealth, right? Um, a lot of employers were sort of back and forth about telehealth and I don't really know how to do this and I'm not really sure it's going to be worth it and oh, I've got this HSA, how is this going to work with telehealth? Um, I think that employers became very aware of the fact that all of their populations don't necessarily have a doctor within 20 minutes, right? And so telehealth is very, very important and it's now is important to everyone, no matter where you are, because we can't leave our homes. So it really, that, that was one instance in which employers really started, first of all, we had some regulation that said, hey, listen, telehealth, you gotta cover it, right? But we also said, okay, you know what, this really is very important to certain populations, maybe in certain more remote areas, maybe people who are um, experiencing health disparities because they have a little bit of consternation about going to a doctor, they don't feel like they're being listened to. Um, maybe be, they'll be more willing to maybe engage from their homes with someone in their family there to kind of help walk them through the process. This is really important for, not just for COVID purposes, but for populations that maybe weren't accessing the benefits that we had as much. And so I do think that a lot of the changes that we made in reaction to in, in um, COVID, and I think that you know employers were great too. Like they kind of jumped in, not only did they respond to what their employees needed, they started responding to what they thought their employees were going to need. And I think that was really great to see, like employees were trying to anticipate what's gonna happen, what are they gonna need, um, how can we adjust the cost, how can we make this easier for people to access health benefits. I really think that they tried to be very kind of forward thinking, um, and then, but I think that a lot of the changes that came about are probably changes that are going to be here to stay, and I think that's going to be a good thing for both plans and for employees. So as you look into the future, over the next 10 years or so, do you share optimism or worry? Where are you? I'm optimistic. I think we're going to see a lot more employers looking at things like on-site health clinics. I think we're probably going to see some legislation that allows that to, to be something that employers can deliver a lot more easily, even if they're offering something like an HSA. I think that we're going to see more flexible but comprehensive benefit structures. Um, I think that now that you know people can work in Arizona and live in Iowa, we're really going to start thinking about what the concept of a network plan really means and how we're, how we're going to start thinking about devising a way to allow your employees who are working remotely and sometimes very, very remotely in areas of the country that you hadn't really thought about before, how are you going to deliver the best possible benefit structure to them by rethinking how you structure and work, structure your networks and work with TPAs? And so I, I'm really hopeful. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation and we're going to see a lot of changes within the, the healthcare benefits delivery system. So, so yeah. Well, I, I share your optimism. We'll, 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 we'll put a pin in it and we'll, we'll see where we are in 10 years. Okay, We'll come Great. back and visit. I want to thank you so much Absolutely. for spending thank you time for with us today. Me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.